following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. start with the quote from the oracle at Delphi, man know thyself and you will know the universe and its gods. For most of us, we don't have a deep understanding of ourselves. We have a superficial understanding of ourselves, our name, our race, our job, maybe what we like and dislike. When it comes to the deeper understanding, what does it mean to be a human being? Does it mean do we have a soul? We might have ideas about it, or we might have beliefs, but how does one come to know themselves and know themselves so profoundly that they then experience directly the universe, the gods, our own inner divinity, our connection with all the rest of life? It's important to ask ourselves where we seek knowledge. We're seeking knowledge externally, you know, in classes, in uh, documentaries or scientific studies or books. That knowledge might help us to survive in the world, and man's struggle has often been a struggle for survival. But once we have those basic needs met and we find ourselves feeling purposeless or aimless, we have to ask ourselves a deeper question, which is why do we exist? Not just the search for survival, but the search for meaning. To really understand that, we have to start by knowing ourselves. So we have to ask ourselves what we want from life. And if we want from life, you know, just a bunch of money in the bank, a nice car, a good job, well, then we probably wouldn't be here at a group like this. If we want something more, if we want to really understand directly the truth, something that's beyond pleasure or entertainment or comfort, if we want to know what's the meaning of all of this. Why does anything exist? Why do I exist? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? What's the purpose of it all? then we have to evaluate how we've been using our time and our energy. If all of our time and our energy is caught up in that struggle for material success, beyond just covering our basic needs, but really investing our whole life into entertainment, pursuits of pleasure and um, money and comfort, and investing no time in our spiritual search and our own spiritual development, then we'll never come to cultivate this self-knowledge that we're looking for, the knowledge that can go so deep that it can show us 
the root of our own existence. We've talked a lot about consciousness. And that's what we're seeking to really understand. Where does consciousness come from? Some, some very materialistic scientists will tell us that consciousness is just an epiphenomenon of the brain. It's just, you know, we're all just walking chemical reactions. But in these teachings, we believe that consciousness is actually the root of our experience of all life. And it's only through consciousness that we can experience <clears throat> thought or emotion or physical sensation. So that's what we're going to work with. So we need to know why we're here. Of course, in that deeper sense of why do we exist, but also why are we here studying spiritual teachings. And so the founder of the modern Gnostic movement, Samuel M. Vior, has a quote about this that is very meaningful to me. And he says very directly, Obviously, we need to know our purpose in gathering ourselves here in these studies, and for what. If curiosity is the simple motive that moves you, listen. There are many things to be curious about, i.e. in city entertainment centers and cinemas, the bulls in the arena, etc. Yet to enter these studies is something very serious. Indeed, to emancipate the essence, which we've talked about before, is our own consciousness. To disembottle the mind and will from our conditioning, is not an easy task. So the Gnostic work, to really go that deep, to really experience our true nature, is difficult. We've talked in the past few weeks, past few months, about different barriers that we have. So we've talked before about how we need to struggle to awaken our own consciousness, that most of the time our consciousness is asleep, that we're going around in our mechanical habits, uh, same thoughts that we've thought many times before, feeling the same emotions that we can't seem to stop feeling, even if they're negative, even if it's sadness or anger, and we can't seem to get out of it. Our same habits, our same routines. That if we really want to wake up and experience life in a new way, experience life in a more profound way, we have to overcome certain barriers. So one of the first things we talked about was the three brains, that we have an intellectual center, an emotional center, and a motor instinctive sexual center, that we need to work with our physical energies, our emotional energies, and our intellectual energies in a balanced way, and that by balancing and achieving that type of equilibrium in ourselves in this moment, but also in our daily lives, that we can begin to awaken consciousness. When we awaken consciousness and we work with self-observation, um, and we are truly observing our, not just our external life, but our internal states, our states of mind, our emotional states, that we begin to see what is false in us. We distinguish between consciousness as a pure perception of each moment, and then an egotistical filter that prevents us from seeing situations as they are, seeing situations with equanimity and serenity, that instead we become very upset or angry, or unhappy, or displeased with many situations in life because of our own egotism. And so today, we're going to talk about once we finally established a basis of equilibrium, you know, to an extent, we have to begin where we are, and we've begun to observe what is false in us, how do we move beyond that and begin to have those higher experiences of the truth, the experiences of our consciousness free from any delusional, egotistical ideas we might have about ourselves, but to truly understand 
our own nature. So we're going to talk about how we can form a foundation for those types of higher experiences today. So do we spend most of our time observing reality? I gave some examples last time about how maybe you meet somebody and the first time that you meet them, you think they're a really nice person, and then later on you find out that wasn't the case, or vice versa, you think somebody's a jerk, and then later on you might find out that they're a great person and one of your best friends. But if we extend this little problem we see with our filtered perception to our whole life, how much of the time do we spend actually directly perceiving the situation as it is. So already I've been talking for a few minutes, and probably most people's minds have drifted, <laughs> begun to think about other things. And, and we can do that at many points in our life. You know, we're sitting there in a meeting at work, or we're sitting there with our family, having a conversation, doing some task. And how rarely are we actually focused on that task? Are we actually present and engaged with it, attentive to that conversation without some kind of mental filter, without many other distractions of what we should be doing or what we wish was happening instead or what we have to do later, but to just be present and enjoy our lives. And so if we spend most of our time in that state that I mentioned of mind-wandering, then how much are we really living? And how are we going to understand the true nature of our reality and of ourselves if we're never there? consciously speaking, if we're asleep, if we're hypnotized by our own ideas about life, our own perceptions that are not true, then how do we begin to see the reality? So take an average day today. You know, How long do you think that you spent worrying about things or fantasizing about things, daydreaming? I, you know, I see this in myself a lot when I'm driving. I'm not really focused on driving. I'm thinking about all the other stuff that I have going on. So it's not to condemn mind-wandering, but to say that if we're really seeking to wake up consciously, to begin to perceive life in a profound way, in a new way, in an alert way, then we can't be always seeing life according to our habits. Many of us have somebody in our life, I think this happens a lot with family members, where we already know how they're going to act and what what buttons they're going to push. And um, so you might go to see somebody you know, for example, I don't have a brother, so I can say, you might go to see your brother, and you already have this idea of, oh, my brother always gets on my nerves in these particular ways. And so even when you've just walked into the room and it's the first few minutes of talking to him, you already have it in your mind that this is going to be an unpleasant encounter. It's going to go the same way it always goes. You've already analyzed it. You've got to come up with a solution. Right. And so, so you're not giving each situation a new chance. And what happens, interestingly enough, we see this in psychology as well, is that when we have our own preconceptions about somebody, we end up treating them in a way that causes them to continue to to respond to us in the same way. So these types of cycles can happen in our relationships. They can happen at our jobs. Oh, I'm already dreading going to work today. It's going to be a terrible day. And then you show up and you have that kind of attitude, and it ends up being a terrible day. Right? Well, yeah, so there there can be, you know, some feedback loop there. So it's very important to shake ourselves up a little bit psychologically to perceive each day and each moment and each person in a new way, to really see the reality of that. 
And to do that, we need to be awakening our consciousness. And so one way that we can awaken consciousness is self-observation. Talked about it before, but there's a specific technique that we use in Gnosticism called the key of soul or the key of SOL. Um, and so as taught by Samuel and Beor, we hear that Gnostic students must learn to divide attention into three parts. Subject, which is us. Object, which is whatever it is we're focusing on in that moment in the external world, in the location, which is where we're at right now. So we can go ahead and go through it right now. So the subject, to not fall into forgetting of oneself before any representation. Who's ever watched a movie or a TV show and you get so sucked into it that somebody can be talking to you in the other room or walk up behind you and you don't even hear them because you've completely lost focus, you know? So we forget about our physical bodies. We forget about our emotional states and our intellectual states. We just go along with things, and the next thing you know, you've gotten so caught up in your anger that you're shouting at somebody before you've even been able to catch yourself and realize, I'm getting angry. It can happen that we're not aware of ourselves. So right now, if we become aware of ourselves, we can use the three brains as a point of reference that we talked about before. So physically, how am I feeling in my physical body? This isn't an intellectual process, but just to consciously observe it, to just feel your body. Uh, Emotionally, how am I feeling? So even if you don't have a label for your emotional state, to become aware of it. What am I thinking? Become aware of your thoughts. And that creates a space of separation from ourselves from which we can observe in a more balanced way. So after we've become aware of ourselves... We need to also be aware of the object of our attention. So he says, to observe every representation, every fact, every event, no matter how insignificant the latter may seem in detail without forgetting oneself. So while maintaining our awareness of ourselves, to be aware of the person that we're talking to or the thing that we're listening to or the task we're engaged in, no matter how meaningless it seems, maybe you got a job at a factory where all you do is you push a button all day, So no matter how meaningless it seems to be awake to that moment, to be alert to it, to perceiving it as new and not allowing your mind to drift off into autopilot, but to wake yourself up. Because the more that we work with that muscle of self-awareness, that muscle of consciousness, the more we begin to perceive even more of reality. And then also being aware of the location, the rigorous observation of the place where we may be, and to ask ourselves, what place is this? Why am I here? So for most of us, we walked into this room, We had a look at it, we found the chair, and since then we've forgotten about the room that we're in. So what we want is not the tunnel vision of consciousness where we're only perceiving a little speck of our experience. We want to expand that consciousness out, and the way to do that is to work with consciousness, to wake yourself up. So throughout the day, I try to catch myself. You know, if I'm at the computer and I'm working away, and then suddenly I'm like, oh, I'm not self-observing. To catch myself, to work with a practice like the key of soul. To, to make myself aware of myself, aware of what am I doing, where am I? And gradually your consciousness begins to expand so that then you can be, I don't know, if you've ever, uh, you know, I have a walk to work where I walk across, you know, a, a really beautiful green space 
And so usually I'm there in my tunnel vision and I'm really focused on like, okay, I got to get to work. Here's the things I'm going to do. But when I wake myself up like this and I use a practice like this, suddenly my experience of life becomes much richer, much more profound. I notice the people walking by. I can hear the birds. You know, I can smell the, the freshly cut grass or whatever it might be. So if we want to have a really dynamic and living experience of life and not be sleeping like robots, then we can work with this type of practice. It's a spiritual practice. It's a spiritual exercise of working with our own consciousness, our own perception. Um, and that's, that's distinct from an intellectual understanding. It's not, oh, okay, I hear the birds, I smell the grass. You know, it's not in your mind. It's just being aware of it, just being alive to it. And so Samuel Ambiore also wrote that whosoever wants to awaken consciousness must work here and now. We have the consciousness incarnated, and that is why we must work with it here and now, in our body, in our daily lives. Not to be off fantasizing about other things, but to be working right here in this moment, in every moment of our lives, with our own consciousness. He goes on to say, whosoever awakens consciousness here in this physical world awakens in all the suprasensible worlds. The one who awakens consciousness in this three-dimensional world awakens in the fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh dimension. The one who wants to live consciously in the superior worlds must awaken here and now. So we're going to talk a little bit about what those superior worlds are, but I want to point out that what's the foundation for having higher experiences, for experiencing the truth, our true nature, the root of our existence, our inner divinity, the basis for it, as he's pointing out, is to begin working with our consciousness here and now. So if we want to sit in meditation and really awaken in higher states of being, we have to begin by awakening in our daily life all the time, moment to moment. And so we could use this diagram of the tree of life, which is also on your handouts if it's easier to see it there, to perceive where we are. And we talked about the bottom part of this before that here at the bottom of this big sphere, Malkut, is our physical body. So if we're aware, if we're conscious of our physical body, well, then we can know that a part of our consciousness is here, active in the physical body. We've also talked about having an energetic body, the vital body, and that's the energy that moves and circulates blood and air and keeps us alive, allows us to move around. Without the energetic body, we wouldn't be able to exist physically. So... We have an aspect of our consciousness. Don't know how conscious of, we, of it we might be from moment to moment, but we do have an aspect of our consciousness that is animating our body and keeping us alive. We also have what is called an astral body, related here with the sphere of Hod. And the astral body is all of those emotional energies that move through us and keep us um, functioning on the emotional plane. And then we have a mental body here in Netzach that um, transforms all of our thoughts. And finally, the human soul, or for us, maybe the uh, the essence of a human soul, which is related with our with the sphere of Tiferet. There are higher spheres on the tree of life as well, related with our divine soul in Geberah and our innermost spirit in Hesed. Um, and so those are the things that we want to start experiencing. So we might have a sense of our physical body, a sense of the energy moving in our body. We might be familiar with our emotional states and our mental states. And we might even be a little bit conscious of our own willpower. 
But how do we become conscious of a divine soul, of our inner spirit? Or even higher on this tree of life, we have these top three sephirot that are related with the three primary forces. In Christianity, we call them the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In order to be aware of those, we have to awaken here and now. I also want to point out that there are lower dimensions. So if this is the tree of life, we can consider that these spheres at the bottom are the inverted tree of life, the shadow of the tree of life. And last time we talked about the ego, that we have many delusional states that we get caught in. We're so perhaps walk into a room and are very afraid that everybody's going to hate us in that room, you know? And even if it has nothing to do with reality, even if you walk in the room and people don't even notice that you're there, you can have your own psychological state about it. So that would be experiencing a lower state of consciousness, a state of consciousness that is not free, that is not experiencing reality, but is conditioned by our own psychological habits. So in order to ascend to higher states, we need to become aware of these lower states. Talk a little bit about the tree of life. I took a quote from the GnosticTeachings.org website. It just describes that the primary symbol of the tree of life is the structure of ten spheres called sephirot in Hebrew. These spheres have many levels of meaning. Macrocosmically, they represent dimensions or worlds. Psychologically, they represent aspects of our consciousness. The ten spheres are but a simplification of a much more sophisticated and complex rendering of the many dimensions found in existence and non-existence. So just as these can represent psychological states or aspects of our consciousness, they can also represent higher, superior levels of nature in which nature becomes more rarefied, more divine, more pure and sacred. And so if we want to experience higher dimensions, what might be called heavens in some, some religions or nirvana, in order to do that, we have to awaken and we have to liberate ourselves from lower states of being. You can think of the, the consciousness as a seed that has been planted in physical matter. We actually have a teaching about the ray of creation in Gnosticism. That up here we have the Ain, which is the nothingness. And from the Ain emerged the Ain Sof, which is... Um, the limitless. Nothing. Right. So the nothing, and then the limitless, and from Ainsof emerges the Ainsof Or, which is the limitless light, the light of the Christ. And as that light descends through these different dimensions, these different levels of nature is gradually going to be planted here in our physical body. So whatever we choose to do here and now with our consciousness, with that little seed, will determine if we're going to grow as a tree of life, if we're going to descend into lower states of being. It's very important to learn about our consciousness, to work with it, to understand it, to meditate, to self-observe. And as we work with that energy, then to be, be able to begin to understand higher dimensions as well. So if we've already got all the elements that we need, how can we experience those higher states of consciousness? Well, just in that analogy of planting a seed, a seed needs certain conditions in order to be able to grow, right? What does a seed need? Water, 
light, air. air. So, so we already have the seed planted in the earth. But do we have the light? Do we have the teachings and the doctrine that help us, um, you know, the scriptures, the word of God, whether it's the Bible, the Bhagavad Gita, you know, the Buddhist scriptures as well? Do we have that type of nourishment coming into our life? Or are we filling our minds and our hearts with lots of garbage, you know, lots, lots of, of other, other junk food that's not nourishing the soul? And do we have the water, the water of our life, you know, the energies that we need? Because in order to self-observe yourself all day and all night to be awake in the dream state as well, you need a lot of energy. And so we have to talk about the conservation of energy. And it begins by just observing yourself and seeing how you're using your energy. So if you observe yourself through the day, you know, how did you use your physical energy? How did you use your vital energy, your emotional or mental energy? Volitional energy is the energy of your willpower, your, the energy of your consciousness, your spiritual energy. How did you use all of that in a given day? Did you use it wisely? Did you overexert the mind or the heart or the physical body out of balance with the other centers? So much of this is building off of what we've already talked about. But in order to conserve it, we have to first see how we're using it and where we're wasting it. So, you know, if I'm spending... Um, if I'm spending 10 hours a week out at bars drinking a bunch and, you know, laughing with my friends and doing all that stuff all the time, well, is that 10 hours of energy that I'm conserving for my spiritual practice or is that 10 hours of energy that I've just kind of binged on and it's gone? It's never coming back. Elsewhere. Right. So, so if we want to use this life wisely, if we want to really ask ourselves, what do we want from life? And what we want from life is something more than just entertainment. It's something more than just, you know, pleasure and money in our bank accounts. But we really want to know divinity. Then we have to start by being serious about looking at how we use our life. Because if, if we are using our life in ways that don't achieve that type of outcome, then we can't be surprised. Everything in, in nature works on a basis of cause and effect. And if every cause that we're putting into motion is creating effects that are, you know, wasting our energy, well, then we're going to get to the end of our life. And, you know, we shouldn't be surprised at that point that we haven't cultivated our soul because we haven't put any of the, put any of the causes into effect that would have created the awakening of consciousness. So we have a really valuable opportunity that we have teachings like this. Now we have access to all the world's scriptures access to very elevated teachings, and especially here in the United States, many of us have more leisure time than, than has ever existed in the past. But how are we using that time, and how are we using this precious lifetime? Um, we have a chance now to, to really know ourselves and to know divinity directly, and if we don't take that seriously, well, then there's nobody to blame but us. So... An important piece of conserving energy is ethics. So a lot of times people talk about morality. Morality can change depending on where you are, what country you live in, the time period. For example, I was living in South Korea, and many of the morals in Korea are very different from the morals that we have here in America. So who's to say which moral is better or worse? But when it comes to ethics, this is really something personal. 
Yes, in the, uh, you know, in the Ten Commandments or in the uh, ethical foundations of Buddhism or in yoga, the yama and niyama that we're going to talk about. In all of those teachings, we're getting a sense of ethics. But truly, we have to go deeper than just doing something because somebody told me to do it, because my priest said so or my teachers or whoever told me to do it. We have to find the ethics in our own heart, in our own conscience. So we know when we're doing something that's wasting our time. You know, we know when we're doing something that's harming others or harming ourselves. And if we choose to ignore that and waste our energy, well, like I said, we're the ones who will have to deal with the consequences. So ethics is not about following some strict dogma that's been imposed upon us, but ethics is about really working with the energies of nature and the energies of our own consciousness and the energies of our soul. There's a reason that we have a conscience that knows wrong from right. It's because we're longing to awaken to something more. But if we don't set the right foundation, if we don't have the causes that help us to awaken in higher dimensions, then we won't be able to do it. So another quote from the Gnostic Teachings website is that ethics are not just mechanical laws that some external authority is trying to impose upon us. These rules, commandments, or vows have a very specific function, which must be clearly grasped, and that is this. If you perform actions that are harmful, you create disharmony not only in your environment, but in your mind. Yet if you follow these ethical observances or positive practices, you create positive energy, not only in your environment, but in your mind. So the purpose of yama and niyama, or the commandments of Moses, is to stabilize our psychology so that we are no longer vibrating with so much negative emotion. So in every religion, if someone's going to become a practitioner, like a monk or a nun, they have to take certain vows, ethical vows, renouncing um, harmful behaviors. And this is not just because somebody wrote a rule book and said that you have to do it. This is because when we work with spiritual energies, we need to be aware that disharmony will create an inability to see the truth. So if you go and you're lying to people all the time, eventually you yourself become unable to perceive the truth. And many people justify it. Right, right. In your own mind, you become confused. People justify, I hear many people say, well, everybody lies, you know, it's no big deal. But if you really make an effort to be honest, you begin to see things in a very different way. When we lie, we actually come to hate ourselves. We come to feel that we have no integrity as a person. We come to be confused in our own mind about who we are because we've said so many different things to different people that we don't even know anymore. Who am I? And lying is just one little example of ethics, right? There are much more profound types of unethical behaviors that we can give into. So it's, it's serious in this work. I mean, if we really want to experience directly divinity and higher states of consciousness, then we can't just skip this step. People want to jump right into, you know, the highest levels of tantric Buddhism and, you know, all of those higher aspects without establishing their own ethics. So as people get very confused, they start working with energetic practices and they create more harm for themselves and for others. What we need to do is cultivate a stability of mind in which then divinity can express to us very directly because the mind becomes like a serene lake. But each time that we're doing things that in our own conscience we don't feel right about, coming to disintegrate ourselves so that we don't feel uh, 
so yeah, so we don't even have a good sense of our own character. Well, then how can we go and sit in meditation or prayer and bear our souls to God and expect that, you know, God's going to show up? Because we don't even, you know, we don't even have that sincerity with ourselves in those cases. So to highlight just one example of ethics from uh, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, the first two steps of yoga in the Yoga Sutras are yama and niyama, which are to do and not to do. So certain behaviors that we should be doing that are harmonious with other people, harmonious with ourselves, harmonious with divinity and our environment, and that generate, um, you know, a good energy, a positive energy that can help us to awaken. And then actions to avoid, because when you do those types of actions, they it's like throwing throwing big rocks in the lake. And so, of course, you have to then just wait for those effects to dissipate. So under yama, we see nonviolence, truth, non-stealing, chastity, and non-avariciousness, so not being greedy. I'm going to point out that these are not just physical actions. It's really good to physically avoid being violent, to physically say the truth, not to steal, to be chaste, you know, to conserve our sexual vital energies as well, and um, not to be greedy, right? or jealous. But in our mind, can we also do that in our heart? So I might be angry at my friend and I might say, okay, well, I'm catching myself. I I see this anger and I shouldn't be violent. So I'm not going to punch my friend. But in my mind, am I sitting there criticizing my friend in my heart? Am I hating my friend, this person who I should love, who I should have compassion for? So it's not just to get caught up on the physical actions. That's where we need to begin checking out what am I doing with my physical actions, with my daily life. But then as we're working with self-observation and we're going into those deeper states and truly seeing ourselves, you know, we'll discover many states in ourselves that are unpleasant, that we don't like to see, that we have, that we do have hatred in our hearts, even for our family members or the people we are supposed to love, that there are moments when we truly hate them, when maybe we think we want to kill them. It's terrible, but we've had those thoughts, you know, we've had those feelings. And so we need to think, we need to observe them. We need to become aware of them, meditate on them so that we can change, so we can pray and get the help of divinity to become better people. Because every time that we're acting on it or we're fueling our envy, oh, I I just hate that guy. I, I really, you know, I hope he loses his job. Every time we're feeding our energy into those types of thinkings and those, you know, that manner of emotion, we're just creating more disharmony in ourselves, more unhappiness. And we're not, you know, we're not going to be calm. We're not going to be able to experience higher states, higher emotional states of compassion and truth and love and, you know, um, serenity. We're not going to feel that as long as we're pouring all of our energy into negative states. So here in the other column, we have niyama, purity from desire, the egotistical desire, the desire of I want and I don't care who has to suffer for me to get what I want. We got to. Yes, well, entitlement as well. Yeah, definitely would be part of that. So we need to let that go. To not be so consumed with, I wish that reality was a different way. I wish that my life was a different way. I wish that these people would treat me differently than how they're treating me, because that's making us very unhappy. We need to learn to accept reality, and um, to let go of our own egotistical wishes to change everything, because they're the cause of our misery. I mean, we talked about 
the noble truths of Buddhism and that suffering is caused by desire. So if we want to stop suffering, we have to let that go. We need to have contentment with what one has. We can also work with austerities or spiritual practices. So we can begin with prayer or meditation or, as I mentioned, self-observation. We have many other spiritual practices in this tradition that we can work with as well. Study of the scriptures and continual remembrance of God. So there's that light that we need to nourish our soul, to awaken. By continually remembering God, we can avoid doing actions that we don't feel are truly ethical. Because if you really remember in each moment, divinity is here in my heart, in this temple, then how can you continue to be cruel to your neighbor and to hate the people around you, to be full of all kinds of defects? You want to change. You feel remorse. And you can test this. So I've had many times in my life where, um, you know, rather than trying to change an unpleasant situation, I just started to try to change myself. So, you know, I'll be honest with you guys. I've had a bad attitude about many jobs I've had in the past. And so realizing, like I said, there's a cycle there. I go into work with this attitude of, oh, this one coworker is going to annoy me and my boss is going to be a jerk and I'm going to have all these problems with customers. And so to rather than trying to always run from one job to the next job to the next job and finding ourselves again in an unhappy situation in our new job, yep, your problems follow you. Exactly. Because the problem most of the time is with you, not with your external circumstances. Or even if external circumstances are very bad, I mean, some people have very difficult lives, very challenging external circumstances. Sometimes the only thing that we have control over and power to change is ourselves. And so I've worked with this, you know, and I tried really hard. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm catching myself. Got to not lie, even though right now my boss might be mad at me if I tell this lie. I've got to catch myself and forcing myself to do it. It's difficult. It's challenging work, but... If you put it into motion and you test it out, you're going to see the results, and you're going to see it in your meditation and your practices as well. Then then when you have that faith from your own experience that putting ethics into motion really works and really helps you to awaken and decreases your suffering, puts you into harmony with the people around you and harmony with yourself, then you don't need anybody lording over you and telling you what to do. You want to do what is right because you know that it brings you happiness. You've seen the, the link there between cause and effect. But because most of the time we're totally psychologically asleep and we're not aware of what we're doing or what effects are coming from what we're doing, then we go around with an attitude of entitlement. And, oh, why aren't things the way that I want them to be? And we don't accept responsibility. and We don't see that we are putting the very causes into motion. <laughs> yeah, we don't, we don't see that, that our own thinking is flawed, that we think that reality should succumb to our will and our wishes and our ideas about reality, rather than being conscious of, okay, reality functions on a basis of cause and effect. And if I'm not working by putting the right causes into motion, then there's no way I'm going to have positive effects. If you go around and you hate people and you are mean to people and you, you know, lie, steal, murder, cheat, all of those things, you're going to have an unhappy life. But sometimes we do one good thing and then... We feel like, well, how come I did that one good thing and I'm not getting all these results, ignoring that the other 99% of the time we're doing a lot of harmful things. 
So we need to be really sincere with ourselves, a radical kind of sincerity with ourselves of moment to moment, what kinds of causes am I putting into effect and slowly tip the scale back so that you're putting more positive actions, you know, turning the other cheek. If somebody's, I mean, don't endure abuse. Don't be, you know, have common sense. But if, if somebody insults you, not getting into a huge fight with them and forgiving them, you know, having compassion, maybe they're having a really bad day, whatever the situation may be, putting positive causes into motion every moment. And then gradually you start to see the effects of that. And so there's another quote from Galatians from the Bible. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Yeah, it's karma. Exactly. Cause and effect. And karma means action and consequence. Cause and effect. So sometimes we think we can trick God, you know? We can trick trick God into, um, you know, having mercy on us. Oh, I'll just wait until I'm on my deathbed, and then I'll beg for forgiveness, and I'll be just fine. Well, you never know when you're going to die. <laughs> right. Well, and so... You killed the car accident. Exactly. Two, two seconds. Yeah. And we don't know how much time we have, right? Yeah. That each moment in life is valuable. And God is, you know, God is always watching you. Even if you forget God, God yeah. doesn't forget you. Divinity is very alive, it's very intelligent, that the law of action and consequence is a, an intelligent law. It's not mechanical. Laws of nature might be mechanical, but the superior laws, the laws of divinity, are laws that have a balance of severity and mercy. And so if you act in ways that you know in your own conscience are wrong, then that law is going to be severe on you for your own goods so that you see that you need to listen to your heart, your inner divinity, to do what is right. But if you act sincerely, if you express, you know, sincere remorse and you really want to change, you want to become a better person for your own benefit and also for the benefit of everyone around you, uh, then the law of mercy can help you, can elevate you into those higher states that we saw in the tree of life. There's a, you know, we don't want to be like the Pharisee going around and telling everybody, look how great I am. I'm such a pure person. I'm so noble. You know, I, I do all of these great things. And then in our own mind, be full of impurity, be full of hatred, be full of envy and um, greed and lust. And we want to really be sincere with ourselves and be humble, see ourselves as we are. There's another quote from the Bible, one of my favorites from the first book of Samuel that says, for the Lord sees not as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So when we look at ourselves, do not be, you know, we, we take such good care of our appearance, how we're going to look, how other people are going to perceive us. You know, what kind of job do I have? What kind of car do I drive? These types of outward things. But when we're really working spiritually, and we want to develop our own spiritual growth, our own soul, we need to look on our heart the way that God does, to weigh our heart on the scale and to see, did I really use today wisely? Did I really use today in a way that I feel good about, that I feel like I was trying to become a better person? And it's not to strive for perfection that's unrealistic, but to just be sincere, did I take the next step that I was able to take? And sometimes we'll see things that, that we didn't, that we missed opportunities. And that's okay as long as we're learning from it and we're trying to change, asking for help from our inner divinity to be able to change. And that's how gradually 
working with self-observation, self-observation, working with meditation, seeing these things in ourselves and being sincere that we can begin to ascend into higher states of consciousness and come out of those states of suffering and even have experiences directly with divinity. So when we work with action and consequence, we're working with this law of karma. There are four rules that we should remember and keep in mind. And the first is that actions produce related consequences. So that means that whatever you're doing, it's going to have a consequence. There's no, there's no action that's not going to produce a consequence. So to not think, as some people do, not, to not fool ourselves as, oh, well, I can cheat and get my way through this, and nobody will, will find out. It won't have any consequence. Even if you're lucky and you get away with whatever it was that you did, physically, internally you didn't get away with it. And internally, you're going to, you know, in your own conscience, know. You're going to think less of yourself as a person for having done that. Um, but that things have not only physical actions, but they have, or, sorry, not only physical consequences, but they also have emotional consequences, energetic consequences, consequences in our mind. You know, I gave the example of lying. Lying doesn't just have a consequence of hurting the people that you lie to. It also imbalances your mind, creates disharmony and confusion in your own mind. If you really work to tell the truth from moment to moment, you'll begin to see that, how, how much clearer your mind could become. The second rule is that the consequences are greater than the actions. So you might say one word. It's just one word. If it's a hateful word, it's a cruel word, if it's a loving word, the effects of that word could be much greater. We've seen it in people that have, you know, written a book, or if somebody tweets the wrong thing, right? Twitter is pretty popular right now. So if somebody just tweets the wrong thing, the consequences can be enormous, that they could lose their job. They can lose their entire reputation in an instant, right? So being aware that the consequences are greater than the actions is important to not, to not uh, delude ourselves that, oh, it's just a little thing, but to know that just a little thing is going to produce much greater consequences. And this can work in our favor. Because when we work with positive actions, when we work with ethical actions, um, sacrifices for others, compassion, good behaviors, virtuous deeds, then the consequences as well are great and will be rewarded, you know, in our work and in our life. And people will like you more if you're kind to them. I don't know if you guys have figured that out, right? Usually if you're a jerk to people, they're not going to be nice to you and they're not going to want to work with you. If you're kind to people, um, then you can get along better with people. So even, right, yeah, and people want to cooperate with you because they think you're a nice person. So even on that very superficial level, we can see that, that the actions have effects. But when we're, when we're talking in an even more profound level in our spiritual effects of our life, then this becomes even more important to us. What are the, you know, how am I using my, my emotions, my mind? Am I using it in a way that's in accordance with what God wants for me? You know, with this law of loving my neighbor? loving God, or am I using them to hurt people and, you know, do stuff that I shouldn't be doing? The third rule is that you cannot receive the consequence without committing its corresponding action. So if you want to experience, have an experience of a higher dimension, of a heavenly dimension, talking with divinity or angels, you can't expect to do that if you haven't committed the actions that allow that to happen that nothing is given for free. If you sacrifice and you help others, 
you perform virtuous deeds, you do, you do in, in your daily life what your own conscience, your own inner divinity is guiding you to do, then you'll be able to have those higher mystical experiences. But you can't just expect to go with the flow and continue on in bad behaviors and then suddenly your life changes in an instant. We might have a fantasy about that, but it's not going to happen. Not unless we work. And then fourth, once an action is performed, the consequence cannot be erased. So, you know, after you've said some really cruel thing to someone that you love, can't ever take that away. Right? That's an example of this. However, a superior law always overcomes an inferior one. So if you're sincerely remorseful, you might be able to go and apologize to that person. And they might forgive you. Yes. And so in that in that merciful exchange, you might be able to repair the damage from the from the bad behavior. So you can't erase the consequences of actions that you've already put into motion. However, we work with superior laws here. We work with, for example, the law of sacrifice, of doing kind things for others without expecting anything in return. That's what Jesus has modeled for us, right? He gave everything with his life, a beautiful, a perfect example of the law of love as sacrifice. And if in our own little way, in our own interactions with others, our daily life, you know, our work, whatever our situation may be, if we're working to turn that into a service, to do good for others, not because we want everybody to like us and to praise us and to think we're great, but just genuinely out of love for others, we can overcome our defects. We can overcome the consequences of the mistakes that we make because sometimes being very much asleep, we just say and do stupid things, um, which can be discouraging to see that in yourself. But as long as when you are conscious, you're trying to use that to do good things, the effects of that can be more powerful. We already talked before that when we're doing things consciously, whether positive or negative, the effects of those actions are going to be more powerful. So we want to make sure that we're awakening consciousness, conserving our energy, putting positive, virtuous, harmonious actions into motion so that we have positive effects. All right, and so finally, I've got to finish here with a long quote from Dion Fortune. Now, in many esoteric schools, they talk about initiates. And initiates are, you know, people that enter into the mysteries of divinity, the secret teachings. And now, in this tradition, you know, many, many secret teachings are openly taught so that we don't have to wait for another person to come and to initiate us. But we ourselves have to be the initiators. We ourselves have to take these teachings in our own daily life and in our own spiritual practice and work with them so that then we're able to enter into, enter into higher aspects of consciousness in our own meditation, in our own experience. Um, we have to initiate something new, create new circumstances for ourselves by working with our own consciousness. When the consciousness is free, when the mind is free from conditioning, when the will is free from conditioning, then we have freedom in our life to see things in a totally new way, to make new choices. But as long as we're caught in that cycle of repetition, sleeping, mechanical consciousness, then we, we don't have any power to change. So as we start to wake up, um, we have to master equanimity and equilibrium in our circumstances because life is going to throw a lot of hard challenges your way. 
Many of us experience this right now. Many of us are here in these types of studies because we're suffering and because we're trying to find a way to transcend that suffering. And in order to do that, first we have to begin by accepting suffering, not in a way that is passive or complicit with evil, but in a way that is the integrity of the soul. Um, and so in this quote, Dion Fortune says, the initiate may accept his lot with a calmness which amazes men whose impulse it is to curse or pray according to their nature. But his acceptance does not necessarily imply passivity. To accept one's fate without murmuring does not pledge one to make no effort to better it. Knowing the power of concentrated thought, the initiate makes use of it in all the problems of life. So that concentrated thought is our conscious awareness. His method, however, is not that of direct attack in which he wills the change of the unpleasant condition, but is directed to bring about certain changes in his own consciousness. For he knows that it is his own temperament which is the real instrument of karma. It is only through those factors in his own nature which react that karma can affect him. He knows that certain conditions come to him in order that they may provoke certain reactions in his own nature. And according to his handling of these reactions will be his karma even in the present life. When he has harmonized these reactions, he has worked out his karma. So we break that down a little bit. It's everything that we've been talking about. It's about establishing a really deep sincerity, a deep ethic in yourself, that no matter what anybody does to you, you're going to be a good person. You're going to be a person that you can feel dignity with yourself, integrity, because you know that you've tried to do what is right by your own conscience. And that no matter what circumstances life throws at you, your reaction to those circumstances is going to determine what happens next. So if you respond positively with virtuous actions, sacrificing and helping others, then your life can slowly, gradually ascend into better circumstances. But if you respond with a lot of negativity and make things worse, get into arguments with people, hurt people, well then little by little you're going to increase your problems and descend to lower states of being. So she goes on, talking about the initiate. He knows, therefore, that although he cannot determine the conditions under which his life must be lived, he can determine his reaction to those conditions. It is this fact which he bears constantly in mind in all his dealings. It is this realization which enables him to raise his head above a sea of troubles and view them from the standpoint of cosmic law and spiritual principles. Although he cannot command the conditions to which he awakens from the sleep of birth, he is nevertheless the master of his fate, for he can manipulate those conditions in such a way that they shall bear him, whithersoever he will, just as a ship can tack against a headwind. And the worse the conditions, and the stronger the wind, the swifter his progress. So in this teaching, we're trying to transform our life by using it in a superior way, by using life as a school for our spiritual development. And that, that's very different from a common mindset that, oh, well, I can't control anything. Life just happens to me. And so, you know, if life's terrible, there's nothing I can do about it. I, can, I don't have any power to make it better. We accept responsibility for our life. And we work with higher principles. We work with spiritual principles, not with the laws, the worldly uh, common sense of, of average people, but we're working with a spiritual law and with that, by working with our own consciousness, we realize that the worse our conditions of life, the better for us, because we're able to 
define ourselves, to develop ourselves, to see new things about ourselves, to become stronger in our, you know, in our own soul. The soul is like a warrior. And as a soul, without any battles, can't, can't train, can't develop itself. We look at the ultimate example of this, Jesus Christ, right? Or we can look at saints or Buddhas, people who endured terrible persecution. I mean, Jesus was crucified. If, if that's our ultimate goal, if someday we'd like to gradually ascend towards becoming better people, people with equanimity, truly spiritual types of people that can endure suffering and still love others, still have great compassion and serenity with their circumstances, then we have to begin by looking at our own life, um, you know, our own ability to tolerate the little unpleasantness in our life. You know, if Jesus could handle being crucified, can we take an insult from our neighbor and respond with love? Well, that's where we have to begin. The little things that right now in our life are training us so that we can come to handle bigger things. So there's one more quote I'm going to end with by Dion Fortune. The discipline of the path cannot be learned from books. It is experience alone which brings realization. Let us therefore accept our karma as the first initiation. Let us strive for a mastery of ourselves and our circumstances which shall give us serenity under all conditions. What cannot be cured must be endured. This is the first lesson which karma teaches us. The adept is a man of unruffled serenity, for he is a man of perfect self-control. Let us strive for mastery of the inner astral kingdom of the emotions, having serenity of emotions. Once we have acquired this, we have the key of the astral plane in our hand, ready for the time when the initiator shall bring us to the door. So as we seek those higher experiences, we need to establish the causes here in our own emotional states of being, our mind, our heart, our body, so that we're ready that when the moment comes, we're given the key to enter into higher states of being. We have the preparation necessary. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace. Thank you.